today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today on the show, the city of Hamilton is looking into ways to protect the waterfront trail from further flooding damage. What happened at the G20 summit this past weekend in Argentina? And the USMCA deal may be signed, but that doesn't mean it's smooth sailing from here on in. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. New Hamilton City Council uh, gets down to work this week. Uh, one of the first things they're going to have to deal with is what to do with the uh, waterfront trail. As you know, there's been some uh, serious damage inflicted on the trail over the last little while, and the price tag is rather substantial. Joining us to talk about this is Jason Farr. He's the uh, City Councilor for Ward 2 in that particular area. Uh, Jay, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us again. Yes, thank you, Bill. I'm related to the story, but it's worth saying again. I mean, I, I was on council in the late 1990s when we decided as a council to, to fix up that piece of property and put the waterfront trail in there. And I remember on a Friday afternoon, I think it was in June, I was walking down the trail and uh, one of the fellow walkers recognized me as a city councilor and he said, you know what, you guys mess up a lot of things. But he looked around and he said, you know what, you got this right. This is great. This mm-hmm. this is a real jewel for the city, isn't it? Absolutely, and, and well used. Uh, mostly recreational, but uh, some commuter traffic on that trail regularly mm-hmm. and year-round as well. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I think uh, it's the sentiment of most, if not all, Hamiltonians that we appreciate all the waterfront work that we're doing. And, uh, you know, uh, prior to your time, Bill, there wasn't a whole lot of action in the area. It was more... Uh, oh, it was an eyesore. Yeah. It was yeah, terrible. It, it was polluted. It was awful. And, and you know, I, I, when the city staff at that time said, here's what we plan on doing, I thought, yeah, good luck with that. How can you transform that? But they, they did a wonderful job. Right. But maybe uh, way, way back in the day, we could have taken a little more seriously a thing called uh, global warming. Uh-huh. And perhaps it wasn't even bandied about in 15, 20 years ago, but certainly uh, with the... Uh, 100-year storms happening a uh, whole lot more often than uh, every 100 years. Uh, we're we're trying to take some hopefully proactive steps in addition to fixing what uh, the the storm of 2017 did, uh, at least along that section and parts of Lake Ontario. Well, and it's it's a reality that uh, I, I know Hamilton Council has had to deal with, and, and sadly, you know, the U.S. president doesn't seem to realize this. Uh, but that whole term, the first time I heard that, 100-year storms, it was explained to me, well, it's a storm so severe, they only happen about every 100 years. Now they happen about every three months. Mm. Uh, yeah. And that's and that's because of climate change. That's because of global warming. So what's, what's it done to that area, Jake? Let me explain what the damage is and what needs to be done here. Well, the higher water level uh, means obviously the water is closer to the trail, and in some sections that trail is, uh, you know, almost at water level. And so when we had that major storm of 2017, uh, a lot of waves without any protection from the breaker, which protects some parts, particularly the uh, slips and so forth from the uh, marinas, uh, you know, just battered against the shoreline. The shoreline, as we're reading in this uh, brief report so far, more reports to come, uh, in some areas has uh, insufficient grading and uh, part of the $6.8 million price tag to uh, fix those areas where the grading is I- insufficient uh, and look for other areas where it may be insufficient, but uh, perhaps no damage from the 2017 storm. Uh, we'll have to uh, we'll have to address that. And, uh, some of the work too, Bill, you may be aware is uh, underwater at the shoreline and uh, we'll have to seek out approvals once uh, the project is approved by uh, by council. So how extensive is the damage at this stage for people that may have not been there for the last little while? Well, I mean, there there are pockets still fenced off. Uh, it was very extensive, and in fact, that trail was closed, as you know, for yeah. a number of months while we were trying to assess uh, the public safety aspect of things. We eventually reopened, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, 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 en masse, many people re- returned, most recreational, some, uh, of course, commuting, uh, for work and, and uh, other aspects of their daily lives. But uh, it, it was uh, pretty bad. You'll still see in spots, if you uh, start off at Bayfront Park and head all the way down to the York Bridge, you'll, you'll see that there are still areas fenced off. There's been a lot of work going on, a lot of assessment going on, a lot of temporary fixes. But uh, we have, you know, a barge. We have a floating bridge. It's not just, uh, you know, crumbling asphalt. We have, of course... Thanks to you and uh, your day with uh, council approving uh, lighting that trail, which I think is very significant and important for public safety. Uh, we have areas there in, in uh, the area of lighting and lighting uh, conduits too low that uh, we have to reassess and, and align, realign and fix. And some we have, but others will be part of the bigger picture here. Now, we're talking a substantial amount of money here too, aren't we? Well, 6.8. I mean, uh, you know, we have uh, obviously... 
large budget items to uh, tackle uh, in the coming days, not even months anymore. And uh, with the 2019 budget, there's always going to be challenges. There's uh, significant waterfront investment that continues uh, in the grand scale. I think 6.8 personally at this point, and it, with a cursory look, Bill, it's uh, probably prudent given that, you know, we, you know, since the concept came in your era, you know, we're averaging nearly a thousand people a day, uh, using this trail. Obviously many more than that in the warmer months, a little less in the cooler months, but uh, year round. And so, uh, quite obviously, uh, you know, as a taxpayer investment in, in sort of refurbishing and redeveloping the area and taking into account this time around redeveloping and refurbishing, uh, as a means and ways in which to address, uh, those hundred year storms that happen more often. And, you know, think global warming when we do this redevelopment, then I think we're probably making a pretty good investment. I mean, that's obviously up for debate. Uh, what we're talking about, I think, initially is about 150K for some study uh, and applications. Uh, there's various approvals, some ministries and uh, conservation authorities that we need to speak to and seek a guidance on when we're dealing with shorelines. Uh, federal, provincial levels, and uh, ultimately uh, the 6.8, the bulk of that work would be an approval for 2019-2020. Now, yeah, the, the study that's going to be done is going to be what, to uh, determine priorities, where you want to start? Because you you're not going to do this all at once, I would think. Uh, no, and I think, uh, I, and I, don't quote me on it, but a lot of that has to do with the uh, shoreline at the water's edge and in the water. I mean, you can't just send the construction crew and uh, you have to be very careful when it comes to, uh, you know, contaminants and working inside and on the shoreline. So I mean, we have enough issues with the blue-green algae and, and trying to control the stagnant waters and all the studies we've done there. And so we don't want to in any way with this needed and appropriate work to, to interfere with the ecology of things. When you start talking about what needs to be done, and, and neither one of us are engineers, but I mean, I think in, in many people's mind's eye, they can see what the trail is. I think just about everybody's probably been down there at least once or twice anyway since it, it opened years ago. Uh, are, are we talking about actually raising the, the, the level of the trail itself? I mean, because obviously there's not a whole lot you can do about water levels except to uh, try to accommodate it. In sections, yes, which, as you can imagine, is a, a pretty heady task. Yes, raising the trail is one, the floating dock and, and uh, making that more uh, stronger uh, in the event of events. Uh, the lighting, raising in areas, uh, the the lighting in the area. So, yeah, I mean, and, and we're not engineers, and <laughs> you can tell by my response, but, but in a nutshell and in layman's terms, it is about, you know, we, with the rising water, we have to rise, raise the trail. Otherwise, uh, you know, you're going to need a canoe to get through some sections. Some sections. So this this is substantial work. Then this is this mm. is uh, going to take an awfully long time. And obviously, six point eight million dollars is a big sum. But when you look at the totality of the work that needs to be done, it probably I, I, I'm sure you're going to see this on the staff report. But it's, that, that's probably a bargain, really. Well, I, you know, I haven't seen that, so I can't say yet. I mean, some of this work, as uh, you'll appreciate, is uh, specialty work, and sometimes specialty work can cost a little bit more, harder to tender specialty work. So it all, uh, you know, the devil's in the details. The details aren't quite in front of council just yet. But, uh, you know, it's important work, and to go full circle on our conversation, I mean, you're not – you're not mistaken. There's more than uh, the average citizen who uh, uh, appreciates this uh, opportunity to be right at the water's edge and, and to 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 recreate at the water's edge, to use as that commuter path. I think there's a lot of Hamiltonians uh, that want to make certain that uh, we not only you know, uh, make quick fixes and reopen after an event, but uh, make some, you know, solid fixes that uh, appreciate, uh, you know, the future and what we're going to be dealing with. So be a little bit more proactive if we're going to make a repair, do it right. And, uh, you know, think about the future and some of the things that we're having to deal with. And Bill, you know, I mean, that was a topic maybe for another day. I'm planning on joining Public Works Standing Committee, but one of the things I'm sure we'll be talking about more in this uh, term of council, which begins in a few hours from now, I guess officially, uh, with inauguration, is you know weather events have changed, and 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 global warming is costing municipalities, and we're not exempt, especially with you know a, an escarpment where we see some collapsing, and water's edge where we see some water levels causing serious damage, uh, and they're costing taxpayers money, and so uh, you know these things were discussed now and again last term of council, and I think need to be a bigger part of the conversation 
this term of council because uh, you know we can we can react and repair as as events occur, or we can you know. And I think we're getting a report real soon on how we can be a little bit more proactive, and at least the public and of course council and the mayor have an opportunity to know what a budget looks like. Uh, you know, when it comes to addressing events caused by this global warming. Well, and that's got to be part of the discussion. I mean, mm-hmm. you referenced the storm that, that really, I guess, you know, motivated this because of the damage that was done. But if I recall, it was something like 900 square meters of, of that path had been destroyed because of of the of that particular storm. I mean, that's a substantial chunk. And if, if all you're going to do is repair it, it's just going to happen again in a couple of days, a couple of years. You don't know when the next major storm is going to happen. Yeah, it was rabid. So this, it, this it is really rabid. a redesign you're looking at. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, there there are obviously ways in which we can protect that public space, that widely used public space. And I think, you know, a big chunk of uh, the six point eight million that's the you know the average number being the estimate right now um, is 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 all about public safety, and and it's the right engineering uh, for this day and age when we're dealing with these kinds of events. This, by the way, I, I don't want people to get the impression that we're just talking about what's going on in the West Harbor because this is the Waterfront Trail, of course, is also on the east end uh, down by Confederation Park. And, and I know they've sustained some damage because of weather as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean uh, <laughs> uh, talk about another uh, widely used public uh, trail. When that trail was put in, it was almost instantaneous, the usage, and, and, and beyond the region as well. So, um, you know, I, I had a chance to see both the, the Bayfront and uh, the Lakefront the lakefront seemed to be smaller sections, but still, um, you know, an incredible work by our staff to get the repairs in uh, on Van Wagner's uh, in a fairly short order, um, because closing it off meant, you know, walking in sand and bush. And in some places, it was it was hard to pass because of the the swamps on either side, right? So so or the retaining ponds or swamps. So uh, they did some quick work, but uh, quite obviously, um, you know, we're, we're, we're going to need and we will be seeing, I mean, that, that's yet to come to us and yet to be released publicly, uh, budgets for, for, you know, Van Wagner's and uh, Lake Ontario beachfront trails as well, because uh, uh, that same storm caused some pretty significant damages in patches. Uh, you know, from Hutches on down to uh, Confederation Park. In a related issue, as he segued, uh, we we already know about the plans for Pier 8 and some of the work that's going to be going on, and you're moving full speed ahead on that. Uh, uh, and obviously, though, the Waterfront Trail has to be incorporated in through that, too. I know it's there sort of right now, but, I mean, there's some existing stuff that's in the way. But with this redesign, I would imagine that's going to be rather uh, interesting to see how that's incorporated as as you go through that particular area and maintain the trail. Yeah, I mean that trail right now around Pier Eight just closed about uh, nine days ago for the for the work that's going on the ongoing uh, Pier Eight redevelopment and in particular what we're getting going on now is that thirty meter wide trail system. Uh, most of the waterfront trail system is uh, about five meters, uh, if that. But uh, uh, we have an exciting promenade uh, park that uh, is uh, underway. It's uh, started about eight days ago. Once that reopens, yeah, you know. Uh, Non-engineers like you and I will get a really good idea how to properly design uh, waterfront trails, in this case a trail and a park, uh, and, and take into account because it's a little bit more modern than, than, than maybe the way we were thinking you know, a couple of decades ago. And we're taking into account, I don't have uh, you know, the ways in which we're doing it, and that's, that's for the engineers. But Bill, uh, we'll be able to walk along the edge of that promenade park probably in fall 2019 and see the kind of engineering that you need to uh, uh, undertake to, to take into account these weather events that uh, are becoming all too common. Well, it's it's going to be interesting to see because uh, I, I remember looking at the uh, artist's conceptions of the drawings. Of course, when you selected the, uh, the the firm that was going to do the the redevelopment down there, and mm-hmm. and they've incorporated that in there. Of course, it's going to go yeah. through. But in, in the way it is right now, of course, you've got the yacht club there, uh, and a number of other buildings that are there, obviously. Uh, and then you want to make sure that you've got a clear path over to Eastwood Park, etc. But I mean, it's it's going to be remarkable when it's all done, uh, and that's the continuation, really. So you can go from Coots all the way, hopefully, across the city. Uh, to the uh, to the uh, east end of the city as well. That's that's the long term plan, obviously. Uh, and uh, uh, I don't I know anybody when they designed this thing way back. I guess it was about twenty years ago, right now, that figured that the weather was going to be such a factor in this to, that they'd have to actually do some redesign on it as as, as soon as they're doing it now. Yeah, it's it's uh, a reality, frankly. And most of us, you, myself, and I think most people are believers that uh, you know this global warming is very real, and it's. 
you know, I, I think a, a bigger and bigger part of the conversation is how it's affecting our municipal budgets. And, you know, you'll note in, in today's article uh, that uh, alerts and you're, you're, you're obviously helping as well. Uh, the public that you know these things are costing money and, and you, you'll see that there's a, a segment of the article from Natalie Patton there in the spectator that uh, suggests that it's time as well and and in part of this project the 6.8 million potentially average budget uh, to make applications to various levels of government and governments and agencies to get some assistance on this work so you know I mean uh, other levels of government are are well aware we hope uh, you know Premier Ford as well uh, is not like Donald Trump, as you alluded to earlier, and is a believer uh, that uh, global warming is real, and it, it does have an effect on the bottom line, and we need to figure out ways in which to address it for future with, with projects now that uh, are adaptable and and uh, sensitive to the fact that uh, 100-year storms are every three or four months now, as you suggested. Yeah. Well, you mentioned some of the agencies that you're going to have to deal with here. Obviously, the Hamilton Conservation Authority is going to be one yeah. of them, but uh, uh, agencies like the Fisheries and Oceans Canada, Ministry of Natural Resources and yeah. Forestry, those are federal agencies, and we should remind them, by the way, that it was federal money, in part, that helped pay for this initially. And it would be kind of nice if they uh, threw a, a few coins at us to, to try to do some of the reconstruct that's going to have to happen here. Well, we're, we're eligible, uh, and so I, I would hope that they're... they're they remain partners. I think they understand and appreciate the significance. And, and then like we've already talked about, Bill, you couldn't get a glass of water down here a couple of decades ago. And right now it is increasingly popular as a people place, a place to recreate, a place to commute, a place to just sit passively and enjoy or grab a cup of coffee or go for a, a long walk or a short walk or a hard ride or a, a small jog. But uh, it's it's an exciting place. It's, it's a place we've been making very significant investments in since your time, and we continue to uh, through this term of uh, council. Uh, so, uh, you know, it isn't just Hamiltonians benefiting uh, from that kind of uh, public action. It's, it's all of us. So I, I, I would suspect being that we're eligible, given that significance, given the increasing use that uh, will be successful on some of these applications. Well, I certainly hope so. And like you say, it's obviously going to be part of the discussion going forward with the new council. And, uh, well, you're, I guess, heading into budget discussions uh, uh, in the next couple of days, actually preliminary budget discussions anyway. And that's got to be at least the $150,000 for the study, I guess, is, is I guess that's the first priority you've got to look at here. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I can see many more heated debates on other areas of our budget than this. I'd like to predict, and you know I don't normally, but on this particular case, that most of council, if not all of council, including our mayor, will understand and appreciate the significance of uh, making an investment that puts some good engineering to work, that takes into account the kinds of events that global warming uh, is causing, and to do the right thing and, and, and hopefully be successful on some applications to mitigate the cost of such a a budgetary item and, and uh, approve this. But uh, we shall see in the coming days. And, and, of course, this is just one of, as you've just alluded to, and you brought me down a little bit, Bill, but uh, we've got lots of uh, more budget debates on so many more items and important items to get to in the coming weeks for sure. War to Councillor Jason Farr. Jay, thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. I appreciate it, Bill. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, G20 Summit, of course, wrapped up in uh, Argentina uh, this past weekend, and uh, some surprising twists and turns, as they usually are at these meetings. Uh, they rarely get drab, simply because of some of the personalities that are involved in this. So what actually happened, and how is it going to impact what's going to be happening uh, with world economies, really? Uh, Ferry de Kirchhove is a senior fellow with the Faculty of Social Sciences, the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, Ferry, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us here today. With pleasure. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about this, and, and maybe we'll just kind of itemize some of the things that were happening at the G20. One was a, a bid uh, in the communique to, to actually reorganize and relook at the World Trade Organization. Were you surprised by that? Yes and no. I think there's been a lot of hay done about it, but the WTO has been in trouble for years now, ever since the Doha round, which was the last round to see how we could improve the various mechanisms the WTO would be done. The problem with the WTO is that the consensus system, this kind of, I would call it the, the, the dictatorship of the unanimity, is that at the WTO, 
everything is agreed only when everything is agreed. So you, you don't have a sequential approach to the negotiation on whatever measure they are, and there are plenty, whether it's services, whether it's a, you know, removal of barriers to trade, uh, physical and otherwise. And so the problem is that Trump has made big hay about that because all of a sudden everybody around the table said, of course we have to, we have to change the WTO. Now, Trump looks at the change as freeing himself from some of the obligation of WTO, particularly the dispute settlement mechanism where the U.S. has lost quite often negotiations. And the rest of the countries around the table want to protect that as much as they can. So, yes, there is a problem with the WTO, but the kind of change that are envisaged will take as much time to negotiate as the failed Doha negotiation that started in 2007. So we're talking about the, a, a commitment where everyone takes its own interpretation of the commitment. And I think that's why I find it intriguing that so many people have made so much fuss about it. Yeah, and that's what's going to be intriguing, I would think, too. I mean, they, they seem to have agreed that, they, okay, we need to reform this, but uh, actually how that's going to happen is, is going to be rather interesting. Is, is, is this really a, a United States-centric concern with the WTO, though? Well, it's part of the Trump trade agenda yeah. where, where I hate multilateral imposition on me and I want to reform it according to my whims and wills. And, and, and you've seen that the, the mountain delivered a mouse, as we said in French, with regard to the new NAFTA, because after all, it's, we've been, you know, reworking at the edge. We've been adapting, adjusting it. We've imposed some, some condition that Congress may not even accept because we have this, this vision of, you know, women, gender, and labor rights, which is great. But you have already Republicans that are vitally opposed to that because it is imposing on the U.S., some condition of its sovereignty, because that's the big argument. So it's, it's very difficult to, to see how it can pan out. But I, the, the, the fundamental issue is really that the, the way Trump approached trade. Now, this being said, I, I want to I underscore one thing. We all expected explosion at the G20 summit, and yet uh, Trump nearly behaved as a normal participant, which is very striking. Is it because of George Bush Sr.'s death? Is it because of Cohen? Is it because of the helpful push that was given by Putin in, in taking over three, uh, three ships from Ukraine? There's a lot of that. Is there also the MBS phenomenon where Trump all of a sudden realizing that you've got Congress that really wants to put the Gabaka the, the on, on, on MBS, Mohammed bin Salman from Saudi Arabia? But Trump behaved reasonably well. So a lot of people are leaving this meeting thinking that it was a great success. But you tell me the kind of success that this institution would represent, what, 85% of uh, global economic power, 75% uh, of international trade, you name it. And yet there's not much achievement. But you know what? It's not expected to have major achievement on all these things. Uh, protection is, has been growing instead of reducing over the last uh, 10 years. And even uh, the, the measures, the protectionist measures compared to the, the, the so-called, there was a kind of meeting in London in 2010 where there was a commitment to a standstill on protectionist measure. Let me tell you, it's exactly the opposite that happened. So we're going through a major rethink of the world trading system. And the, the, the relationship that you saw between China and, and, uh, and the U.S. at that meeting may portend better, better, a better future than I would have predicted even, uh, even a month ago. So you, you, there's some good, there's some bad, and there's some process stuff that are important. But, that, you know, we could go on and on and on. But I, the, the, the fundamental issue is what, what are we trying to do at the G20? Okay, improving the multilateral trade system. Well, can the process be more, more, more transparent and efficient? Well, I, I talked to you about the WTO's problem, uh, and, and the, I would call, as I said earlier, the, this kind of uh, dictatorship of the, the, the smaller countries. International investment, the barriers to investment are continuing to plague G20 economics. So that's something that they talk about, but there's not much going on. 
fiscal policy. Well, just think at the difficulty the European Union has to have any semblance of coordination on fiscal policy between the various countries. They have problems on the monetary side and on the financial side. So you think that the G20 is going to achieve major progress? No, it's, it's, it's really meeting after meeting. There is some tinkering on the left, tinkering on the right. The, the key issue is that the process continues and therefore... Uh, you, you, uh, you avoid major disruption, or at least you talk about the disruption like Trump has created. Uh, there's also other issues that are being discussed, which are making slow progress, which are the famous uh, sustainable development goals. You know, the, the new sustainable development agenda, where, which is aiming at reducing poverty, reducing inequality. And <laughs> when I think about inequality, inequalities are growing instead of being reduced. So I'm, I'm not particularly hopeful on that. So, so I, you know, I could go on and on about the various attempts, but this being said, I keep on saying there's, some, there's always some positive about jaw-jaw uh, than war-war, and I think that's, that's what happens at those summits. Let's talk about the, the China situation, yeah. the China-U.S. trade deal, because that kind of came out of the blue, and I think surprised enough a lot of people, Ferry, because uh, they seem to be going in a totally different direction. I mean, let's face it, I mean, a couple of days ago, Trump was t- talking about increasing the tariffs, and, and all of a sudden they seem to have called a truce. Are you surprised by Trump changing his mind or changing his tactic at the last minute? Uh, you haven't <laughs> followed the news. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's, you know what, I, I think on that score, the, 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 the one positive thing that has emerged on the China-U.S. relationship is that at least now we're focusing on the real issue, which are really more the, you know, the protection of uh, rules of origin, the protection of, of technology, the, the, the opening up of the market. So th- those are the real issue. It's not just the, the, you know, the trade balance. The trade balance is something that is part of the international trade relations, and it's true that it's pretty big. But at the end of the day, as we've seen, there is more that the U.S. can hit at China than, can, than China can hit at the U.S., and that's why Xi Jinping, who's not an idiot and who's got a long-term perspective, say, okay, let's see if we can suspend it for a certain period of time and, and, and start hard bargaining again. And that's exactly what Trump wanted. He wanted to have the guy at the table and say, okay, you want me to, to, to delay my, my, the imposition of initial 25%? Well, let's talk, but now th- this should be real talk. So in a way, you know, I, I find myself, and I might commit suicide afterwards because I'm finding myself defending Trump, but I have to say <laughs> that on that score, uh, it, is, it, is a, it is a valuable, uh, valuable approach, but it's been hurting the, the U.S. economy. It's been hurting the, the, the stock market. It's been hurting the U.S. economy, Canadian economy, and others. We're still tied up with aluminum and steel uh, tariffs. So the, the, the future is difficult to predict. On the other hand, and you're perfectly right, the, the China-U.S. agreement to suspend the imposition of additional tariff is a huge win, uh, and that's, that will be the, remembering, the remembered element of the, the G20 in Argentina. But was it politically motivated, uh, Ferry? I mean, you mentioned about the Cohen situation and, and things that are happening domestically right now that clearly are bothering Trump. Uh, was it essential for him to come away from this meeting with some kind of a victory? It's interesting. He likes to change I, I, the channel, doesn't he? I will, I will answer that in, in the number of tweets that came from Argentina. And in fact, Brother Trump was pretty subdued. So I, I, I think he definitely wants to come with a win, and you're absolutely right. And so he can, he, because don't forget, he's, okay, and I'm not just talking about the midterm, I'm also talking about the stock market, which is always his reference point of the success of the economy. This being said, unemployment in the U.S. remains at a very, very low, low, low level. But I think confidence is starting to wither away, and I think he had to come back with saying, okay, I've rocked this trade, this trade world, but look what I'm getting. And I think you're absolutely right. And, 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 and as I said, he owes a lot to the death of uh, George Bush Sr. because he had to be subdued. Mm-hmm. All, but also, I think 
the politics of the meeting was very interesting. So no handshake or at least no meeting with MBS, cancellation of meeting with Putin using the decoy of Ukraine. Uh, I think there again, the Mueller, the Mueller investigation is still in the back of the mind. So maybe it's not a good time to have a one-hour meeting with Trump when, when with Putin when we may have some revelation coming a week later or two weeks later. So I think all of that is actually all those extraneous factors are what brought a meeting that was for the first time normal with Trump involved. Climate change was one of the things that they agreed upon. Uh, the final communique, yeah. all 20 signatories on this one, uh, 19 of them reaffirmed it, and we know which one didn't, yeah. which is well, pretty much in keeping with what Trump uh, uh, was expected to do, wasn't it? Yeah, Fair, obviously because difference. he pulled out of the Paris Accord. Yeah, but there's a difference. There's a difference. Instead of rocking the communique the way he did at the G7, yeah. Trump just ensured that he reiterate his opposition, but he didn't say, I will not sign on the communique. As long as I can put my exception, I'm fine. So, again, that's a bit of different than the way he behaves otherwise. We are surprised. Uh, you, you just mentioned about the fact that he canceled the meeting with Putin and uh, he didn't meet with the crown prince. Uh, there was a move, obviously, by Macron and, and by others uh, to try to isolate Putin because of what was happening in Ukraine right now. And, and Trump didn't really get involved in that, did he? No, he didn't. He didn't. I, and and uh, and again, I think domestic politics plays a big part in that. He, did, you know, he he had this, this handshake and and that. But I think that the way Putin uh, warmly welcomed uh, MBS Mohammed bin Salman must have been a horrifying sight for everybody else. It really. Putin saying, up yours to all of you, and I'll do whatever I want with this guy. He's my partner in crime. And so I think there was a kind of moment of shock, and, and, and that may have also influenced Trump. I, Trump is thinking 2020, and, he, and, and, uh, and he's at the same time talking, thinking short-term because of what is going on with the Mueller investigation. And so I think he's trying to weave himself through. And, and uh, I don't know what the future portends, but I, I, as I said, there's, there's a lot of positive coming from a from a no meeting that took place in in Buenos Aires <laughs> from from that yeah from that standpoint op, op, optically i mean i obviously trump had to keep, maintain low key and as you say whenever there's something bad going on that that seems to bother him uh, he seems to be the beneficiary of, of, of something, like you say, the, 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 the death of Bush Sr., uh, yeah. that obviously became the number one story. Uh, and and obviously, if you've looked at some of the, as most of us did, some of the uh, the video that we've seen from the G20 meeting, uh, and, and you're right, I mean, the Crown Prince and Putin seem to be isolated, but they seem to revel in that. Oh, they revel. They, they, they like. They like. I think they like the role of being the bad guys. Uh, absolutely. When, when, you know, when you are a a contrary, when you're a revisionist, you 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 don't you, you want to be there because you want to show you're still the big King Kong guy there in the in the meeting. But you don't want to be seen as a cuddly and, and nice guy. You want to say, you see, I'm there. You need me, but I'm going to be a revisionist for the next generation. And I and I think that's that's. Maybe I, I really—it's so hard to interpret uh, Trump. But but on the other hand, I think he's starting to realize, or maybe the fact that the Cohen and the revelation are such that it's it's pretty much better for him to, to stay away from 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 Putin. And then we had the interesting uh, whatever you call it, Kanusmau USMCA, which is of course the signature of of the, the the new NAFTA, which where I think our friend uh, the Prime Minister d- did reasonably well, uh, and, and nail a bit uh, Trump by calling it the new NAFTA and also giving the, the real Canadian title, which is the official title under Canadian legislation, which starts with C and not with U. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, this is probably the only trade deal, I think, in existence right now that has two different names, depending on which country you're in. Absolutely, because NAFTA is NAFTA is NAFTA. No, but this, uh, uh, no, you know what? Not ex- no, you're not exactly accurate, because there's been some Canadian, for instance, Canadian-Chilean uh, trade agreement. Well, it's a Canada the Chile trade agreement, and in Chile, it's a Chile and a Canada trade trade <laughs> agreement. So, no, that's that's pretty particularly normal. But it's it's the way, of course, Trump has renamed it, and 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 the way that we Canadian continue to say it's, it's business as 
usual with some some improvement. I thought that, that to, to the extent that uh, we still have tariffs on steel and aluminium, and clearly Trump doesn't want to remove them, I think na- being nailed a bit by Trudeau was good. Whether it pays off at the end, I I, I don't know. But I, I you know my my view on on what how Trump looks at Canada, and I've horrified many people. I think Trump, in the bottom of his heart, thinks that Canada should be part of the U.S. and it's a it's a kind of that little annoyance, that little parcel of territory that should be part of the U.S. because after all, we're the same and they're just should they should just be a, a bigger state in the in the union. I I know I'm horrifying when I say that, but I I don't think that Trump has any consideration for the political reality, the entity of Canada. He recognizes it, it's a it's a it's a necessary partner, but I think he would be much better off if he united. Canada and, and, and the U.S. under his yoke. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Ferry, thank you so much for the time today. Great talking with you again. <laughs> with pleasure. Thank you for Take having Take care. Me. Ferry DeKirkhove, of course, uh, from University of Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, it's uh, signed and uh, not quite sealed, and we're not even sure if it's delivered yet, but the uh, USMCA trade deal uh, was uh, signed upon by the three leaders on Friday, of course. Uh, the deadline that was uh, self-imposed, really, uh, is because the Mexican government actually changed hands the very next day. But uh, there are a number of experts that are looking at this and saying, look, at, we're not so sure this is ever going to actually come to pass. Uh, a couple of things have happened about this. Uh, one being, of course, that uh, the uh, Congress, which was soon to be a uh, democratically uh, majority Congress, uh, is uh, now suggesting that they may not even like this deal. That may hold it up. But to try to put pressure on them, Donald Trump has uh, threatened, I guess at this stage is maybe the right verb to use here, to uh, kill NAFTA, which I know he's been talking about doing for the last couple of years. But if he does do that, uh, essentially that gives uh, a six-month window for the Congress to either adopt this thing or there be no trade deal at all between the three countries. Joining us to talk about the ramifications and and what was actually signed, uh, Steve Howes, adjunct professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, and of course the uh, president of Millington and Associates. Steve, welcome back. Good to have you on the show again. It's good to be here. Let's talk a little bit about the deal itself, and and then we'll talk about maybe some of the politics involved in this. Uh, We got some ideas about some of this stuff, Steve, and uh, obviously uh, the concern right now, I think, between the two countries, especially Canada and the U.S., is is with the auto sector of this. And uh, there was something that was signed here uh, on this deal, which is known as a side letter, which is not really part of the deal, but it has to do with quotas, I guess. Uh, Canada will be able to export up to 2.6 million passenger vehicles into the United States tariff-free. Uh, I guess we do about 1.8 million right now. Is, is, is that a fair deal? Are we on, on the good side of that deal? I, I don't know if there's ever going to be a good side of a deal or a bad side of a deal. It's, it's the world's changing. And uh, one of the things we can get used to with, with Trump is his negotiating style hasn't changed since he was uh, in the real estate business. Is He's a cutthroat. I'm going to shut everything down, turn everything off. Oh, okay, uh, now that I've said I won't pay you, I'll figure out some kind of a deal. So, yes, the side letter's okay in that it's slightly higher than what we export today. But as you see more and more plants shut down in Canada, uh, that's going to have a much greater effect on the production and how much we export than what the quota says. Well, I know that when that was first speculated upon, uh, when we had this, you know, this, I guess, you know, deal sort of anyway, but agreed upon before it was actually signed. Uh, I know that some of the experts were looking at that 2.6 million cars and saying, well, you know, what if we hit that ceiling? But with the the closure of the GM plant right now, I don't know if we're ever going to get that number. I don't think so. And, and I think there's more closures to come. And, and again, it's not... Uh, a Trump thing as much as it's also an auto sector thing is there's tremendous consolidation going on of brands and uh, manufacturing as we saw a number of plant closures announced uh, throughout North America and over time people are are moving away from some forms of transportation and moving towards others and uh, we have many more global brands that are dramatically more successful than they were 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. So there's all kinds of factors coming into this. I'm pretty sure anything that the United States puts in a side letter uh, in the long run will benefit them before it benefits us. 
That's a point that uh, I guess got lost, obviously, because of the impact it's having here in our area, in southern Ontario, with what happened in Oshawa. But we have to remember, obviously, that uh, a number of U.S. plants closed at the same time, and much to the uh, you know ire of, of the president and a number of other folks. Uh, nobody ever figured this was going to happen. I know that during the the '09 recession, Steve, the uh, the auto sector took a big hit, but we figured, I guess, that we always it's always going to be there. Now there's some questions about this. Uh, you mentioned about other closures. The rumor we're hearing now is that uh, the Brampton uh, uh, plant, the Chrysler plant, may be the next one to shut the doors. Yeah, I think it is fair to say it's always going to be there, but it's unrealistic to think that we're ever going to go back in time. And that's what you hear a lot of the rhetoric around, oh, there should be more jobs and there should be more cars being made in Canada. And that's a dream. That's never going to happen is we should plan on slow and steady decline in the industry throughout North America, and that is just going to be an ongoing way of life. We need to transition our growth into other areas and not rely on, on industries that are fading. But does that include steel? I mean, let's let's bring that into the conversation because, uh, you know, as we're sitting here right now, the tariffs are still in place, and that's having an impact. Uh, and and I think probably had some sort of an impact on the GM decision. Absolutely. Uh, so steel will be there as well. The companies that are really succeeding right now are those that are in finished product steel. So they take raw steel, which is actually incredibly cheap right now. And they're turning it into other products. So those companies, because those prices are pretty stable of what they sell their products for, are doing very well. Their margins are excellent. Uh, but, yes, the reality is more and more products are moving away from steel and moving into other uh, sources, whether it's plastics or, or other solids, that, that can replace it that are lighter weight. So to think that, oh, if we really focus, we could get steel back to the jobs it created 20 years ago, that's a ridiculous premise. You've always been an advocate for or for Canadians, uh, especially Canadian businesses, to diversify. Uh, I know that U.S. is our largest trading partner, but we have to start looking. We've got the European trade deal, I mean, with the Trans-Pacific uh, Part 2, I guess, that Canada has signed on to as well. But uh, where else do we look? I mean, China and India seem to be the two emerging economies and probably the two dominant economies. Uh, I know the U.S. has some sort of a relationship, especially after the G20 meeting with China. How do we nudge ourselves into that? And that's been going on for quite some time, Bill. In the last 20 years, there's been quite a shift. It used to be we sold everything to the U.S., and they're still our largest trading partner. But Canada gets more and more diversified each year, going into India, going into China, Japan, uh, the uh, the EU, and now with Brexit, we'll see how all that plays itself out. But it's, it's a slow, steady approach. There's not going to be, oh, look at this, all of a sudden we're doing billions and billions of dollars in India. It's just a slow, steady chip away. But when it's your largest trading partner, you want to keep going. Like If you have people that come to your restaurant every week, you don't want to alienate them, but you certainly want to attract new customers and get the people moving into your neighborhood interested in coming to your restaurant as well. When we look at this deal, and, and again, we're not even sure whether or not the U.S. Congress is going to ratify this. Probably it would be ratified here in Canada because it's a majority government, so the votes are already there for that. But I, I guess one of the stories here, Steve, is not what's in the deal. It's not. It's what's not in the deal. And one of them is something that's right in your wheelhouse that you've been talking about for a long time, and that, of course, is tech. Uh, you know, we're into the 21st century right now, and tech was one of the reasons that we thought we were going to renegotiate NAFTA, but there's still so much of that left on the table. Yeah, I, I don't think there ever was any intention to look at it. It's Tech is a global-based uh, industry, and it's very free-flowing. A, a ton of quality people uh, come from Canada and work in the States in tech and around the world. And it's probably the most open aspect as far as Americans and people from all over the world coming into Canada. So they're basically, where do you put the rules? You put the rules in the shrinking markets because everybody's trying to hold on to that last nickel, that last piece, or the very well-defined and traditional markets like dairy, etc., where it's, it's very well known. But tech is such a fluid thing 
that uh, they know better and they kind of keep their hands off it. Well, and let's talk about the lobbying that goes on. I, mean, I know there's a bit, a bit of pushback about the, as we talked about, about the dairy industry and, and what's gone on with that and, and how Canada seemed to draw a line in the sand. But there's a great deal of influence uh, in Ottawa right now from, from the major companies when it comes to telephone, cell phone companies, etc., uh, putting an awful lot of pressure on the government. It, it, I, I don't know that anybody's ever said that, hey, that's, it's taboo, it's, it's off the list, you can't even negotiate this. But I didn't get the sense that too many people were even pushing it, and that was somewhat surprising, I thought, especially from the U.S. side. Yeah, it, it's more of a, a conversation that's going to be handled in different realms. The, the big thing is, when is Canada going to open up its borders and allow foreign investment but when foreign investment comes in, it, it won't be an American company. It'll likely be a global company like British Telecom or Singapore Tel or something like that. And that makes more sense for uh, investment coming into Canada. I'm not saying the, the Verizons of the world will never come up here, but the, the way it's being looked at is more of a global solution. Uh, a number of years ago, we actually came pretty close to having a deal with wind, and, and it was going to be bought by British Telecom. So it's much the, the biggest players in the world are not American, they're global. Well, yeah, I, there was that incident, of course, uh, during the Harper years. Uh, I think Tony Clement was the industry minister at the time, where they said they were going to open up the market, and 24 hours later they changed their minds and said, no, I don't think we're going to do that anymore. Uh, and and the, it got a lot of people, including me and, and, and others, giddy about that because they thought, hey, that means Verizon's coming in here. Uh, but it hasn't happened. But do you get the sense that the Canadian government is, is being a little more flexible about this? I mean, there seems to be a, a certain inevitability about that. Yeah, the change is coming for sure. They're going to open it up. It's just a question of when. And uh, I think it's probably going to happen maybe in five years as opposed to in one or two, in that it's such a slow-moving machine to uh, make those kinds of big radical changes where they're going to allow foreign investment. Uh, ironically, back many years ago, I worked in B.C., and uh, B.C. Tel at the time was 50% owned by an American company. So the precedent is there. It's been done before. It's just the regulation came in, and they are very reluctant to back off on it. Is that why it was maybe not included in this uh, this USMC trade deal, MCA trade deal, because it's so complicated that something's going to have to be done on its own? It's complicated and it's more global than North American based. So if, if you try to put it in this agreement, it would actually muddy the waters for, say, if uh, an Italian company wanted to uh, come in and be one of the purchasers. So it would drastically reduce the number of players that could come in and reduce how much investment would go into Canada. All right, Steve, let's for a second here, down that ugly road of the worst case scenario. Uh, we now know that there are some people in the Congress, both in the Senate and in the House of Representatives south of the border, that don't like this deal. Uh, now, to counter that, Trump has, has threatened now that he's going to cancel NAFTA, which he has the right to do. And that kicks in a clause in the NAFTA agreement that says, okay, you've got six months before the deal is actually dead to negotiate another deal. Well, the, the other deal's right here. But if they don't have that one, and if NAFTA expires, where does that leave Canada? Well, I think that's exactly what will happen. And, and Trump very famously, when he built one of his golf courses, uh, there were a number of delays. And so he went to the contractor that built the golf course once it was finally done and said, okay, I'm not paying you anything. And you can sue me and I'll tie you up in court for years. And uh, eventually you might get something, but I really don't care. And then that sat for about a month or so. And then they went back and negotiated, and he ended up getting quite an amazing deal to build that golf course. So I don't think it's a threat that he's going to cancel NAFTA. I think the first time Congress says boo, he's just going to announce that day and say, okay, it's, it's six months less a day now, uh, let's get to work. And he has no problem playing chicken with people. Well, the problem, obviously, from Canada's standpoint, and, and I guess the, the fact that he's going to do that with NAFTA just underscores this, is uh, that old cliche that, uh, you know, we need them a lot more than they need us. Absolutely, and, and it's an America first uh, government now, which you can understand why uh, a lot of people are really happy in the U.S. right now, because it really is American-centric. They've really cut back on 
their position of a of global expansion and and charitable endeavors and things like that. And so, yeah, it'll put us in a very difficult spot, but he doesn't care. He cares about what am I doing for the U.S. economy? How am I growing jobs in the U.S.? And uh, despite a lot of people's beliefs, uh, he has every intention of running for re-election, and he believes he's going to win. But is it, that's that's the the big picture as far as the United States economy is concerned. I mean, those numbers look really good. But we are hearing some stories about little pockets, especially, I guess, some of the border states that do an awful lot of business with Canada, uh, that they are starting to feel the impact of some of the, the counter-tariffs that Canada has put in place. Uh, you wonder what uh, kind of an impact that's going to have uh, from a political standpoint anyway. Um, it could, but they're, they're easy things to do in the 11th hour as well to uh, shore up some of those things, to come back with uh, the U.S. is very big on government support, like paying farmers not to actually even plant crops. So there's tons of precedent there that uh, much closer to an election, if they wanted to buy back favor, they certainly can do it. Uh, and I don't think it'll take that long, because within very short order, I think he will cancel NAFTA, and it's only a six-month window uh, before that we get to the no-deal no zone. And so by then, something will be in place and be approved. Uh, and as far as Canada's concerned, obviously, we're very concerned about the politics that are in place here because Trump seems to be saying at this stage that this is the deal. Uh, and <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, there's no negotiation. We're not going to amend anything here. You take it or leave it. That seems to be his attitude. Yeah, absolutely. And again, he's got... 50, 60 years of, uh, of history negotiating. That way I'm sure he was like that when he was demanding what he wanted for dinner when he was 12 years old. But uh, we, we know this. We know who he is. We know his negotiating style. He's going to push hard, uh, tear the Band-Aid off, and then we're going to find some compromise after that. Um, you asked at the beginning, is this a good deal or a bad deal? It's it's certainly not going to improve things for Canada in any way. There was no chance of that occurring. It's just how do we work around this deal? Once it's in place, a lot of smart business people will start looking at it and figure out ways to beat it. But we go right, right, right back to square one then, don't we? Pretty I mean, with, with no deal, do we, do we knock on the door and say, let's start negotiations again? No, no, I, I think Congress will cave. I think... Uh, once they do the cancellation, the six-month window, um, then Congress eventually will cave because if NAFTA does go away, too many people in, in powerful positions in Congress, their constituents would lose and lose badly. So if he knows what he's doing from that standpoint. Negotiations is a world he knows, and uh, he has no problem uh, playing chicken and watching them squirm at the end. So I think six months, uh, less a day, it'll be the Nylander situation all over. <laughs> we'll come down to five minutes to go, and everybody will say, okay, everything's fine, we're all signed up. So you think Congress are the ones that are going to blink? Absolutely, absolutely, because they still control the Senate above them, he's still the president, and uh, you're, you're going to get, if NAFTA gets canceled, there's a lot of protectionism in place there that's going to sway a lot of voters in 2020. Steve Howes, uh, president of Millington and Associates. Steve, as always, thanks so much for this today. My pleasure. Good talking to you. You, ca you betcha. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.